Washington, D.C. is known to be a city of secrets. And for many decades, one of the most dangerous secrets to harbor was that of homosexuality. Its specter haunted the halls of power, and the true stories of these men and women are only now coming to light. My guest on today's podcast has written a sweeping history of gay involvement in government and has much to say about the past's lessons for the present moment, for media, politics, and culture. I know it's very fashionable now to complain about how terrible things are for the LGBT community in the United States, but I have the completely opposite reaction. Having written this book and being really familiar with what it was like before now, I feel an enormous sense of gratitude that I was born late enough that I did not have to suffer through the experiences that so many gay people had to suffer through before me. James Kerchick is an American journalist and a columnist for Tablet Magazine. He's also the author of the New York Times bestseller, Secret City, The Hidden History of Gay Washington. James Kerchick is my guest today on Lean Out. James, welcome to Lean Out. Thank you for having me. I'm really pleased to get to speak with you about this book today. The storytelling here is so strong. It is a dense read, but also quite entertaining reading. I know you have long been interested in history, Cold War history in particular. At Yale, you studied with John Lewis Gaddis, who taught a seminar on the art of biography. Tell me about the final project you did for that class and how that set you on the path to write this book. So yeah, John Gaddis is, is the Dean of Cold War Historians, and he was my academic advisor at Yale. He was also, he is George Kennan's biographer, George Kennan being the great Cold War strategist. And he, for many years, has been teaching a seminar at Yale on the art of biography. And we would read a biography every week. And then the final assignment was to write our own biography of a figure, living or dead, whose papers were at Yale in the Yale archives. And I was fortunate in that a man named Larry Kramer had just donated his papers to Yale. And your listeners might know Larry, but he was a very important figure in gay history. He was the, he's a playwright. He's a novelist. He was the co-founder of ACT UP, the kind of direct action AIDS group, but also earlier than that, Gay Men's Health Crisis, which was really the first, you know, AIDS organization, AIDS service organization. He wrote a very famous play, several plays about the gay American experience and AIDS in America. And I got to know Larry and was using his papers. And I wrote I wrote this biography of him, you know, 50 page kind of term paper. And that was sort of, I think, subconsciously, I think that's where the book began, because it was a kind of merging of my interest in Cold War history with the sort of gay history. And then it wasn't until a couple of years later that it really congealed. I was living in Washington, D.C., working as a journalist and, you know, realizing that this is a city that runs on secrets and secrecy is a form of power, particularly during this era of the Cold War. Right. Mm. And that there was no greater secret, no more dramatic or destructive secret, I should say, than to be gay. It was worse than being a communist. A communist could become an ex-communist. In fact, some of the most important figures in the American conservative movement were ex-communists. A gay person could not do that. I mean, once you were 
alleged to be gay. It was really the end of your political career. And so I figured that this would be a fascinating way to write about this city and its characters, its power brokers, the presidents, the institutions, the events, the phenomena, all these episodes, this real kind of sweeping panoramic view on this city and the way it works through this prism of homosexuality. Uh, so that's where the idea came from. Mm-hmm. And there's there's just so much here that I did not know before. I mean, one of the things that really struck me was this idea that World War II was a kind of national coming out for gay Americans. Walk me through the significance of that historical moment. So at the time, you know, America was a much more rural society. People didn't live in cities to the extent they do. And if you were a gay person at this time, you were very lonely. Your existence as a gay person was very lonely. And then suddenly we have this war effort and it's a massive mobilization. You know, over 10 million men are, you know, brought together in military bases. They're put on ships, they're deployed overseas, you know, they're they're sent all over the place and they're coming into contact with lots of other people, lots of people of different religions and economic backgrounds, but also sexual orientation. And they're encountering other gay people for the first time. And, you know, ironically, it was World War II that was that was when the U.S. military formally banned homosexuality from military service. But very few gay people were actually prevented from serving just because, you know, they needed every warm body uh, to do something. Right. So you have this massive mobilization and it becomes uh, like you say, it's a national coming out moment. But it would lead it would it would also it, w- it would raise the visibility of gay people among themselves and and certainly would um, assist gay people in developing a group consciousness. But it would also, as we can discuss later, it, w- it would heighten the societal fear of gay people um, mm-hmm. as a as a kind of secret presence in, in American life. Mm-hmm. There's a couple specific stories that I want to focus on today that have really stayed with me. So let's start by talking about the moral panic over communism. And tell me a little bit about Alger Hiss and Whitaker Chambers. So Alger Hiss was a former high-ranking State Department official in 1948. He was the president of the Carnegie Endowment, which is a very distinguished think tank, uh, and a very just well-connected, suave, you know, He's referred to as the Jeeves of the Eastern Establishment. And he is accused in the first live televised congressional hearing. It's before a committee called the House on American Activities Committee. In August 1948, he is accused of being a communist by a man named Whitaker Chambers, who at the time was a very senior, respected journalist for Time magazine. And Whitaker Chambers says that 10 years earlier in the 1930s, he and Hiss were members of the same underground communist cell in Washington, that Chambers was a messenger and he was taking secret documents and information that was given to him by Hiss and passing it on to the Soviet Union. So he's accusing Hiss of being a spy, a traitor. Chambers had also been around the same time that he was living this underground communist life. He was living another secret life as a homosexual. And he confesses this to the FBI at the time because he's concerned, rightly, that the Hiss forces will perhaps use this to to discredit him. And they do secretly. They don't say it publicly. They they start a whisper campaign that 
Chambers is a spurned homosexual that he was lusting after Hiss and Hiss rejected him. And this is why he's making up these crazy stories of Alger Hiss being a communist spy. So it's in the ether, but it's never openly talked about because to actually make that accusation public would have been probably too dangerous for the Hiss forces because people might ask, well, if Chambers was a homosexual, then maybe that means Hiss was a homosexual too. Like maybe that's how they met, right? Maybe they weren't meeting through you know, if the his side is saying that this communist thing is all made up and the Chambers is making up the fact that even he was a communist, maybe they met through this underground gay world. Right. So they don't make this public. They spread it secretly. But it becomes, you know, among people in the know in Washington. Right. And like the kind of higher political echelons and sort of the media elites, they all hear this. And this is really when this kind of cultural archetype of the traitorous communist homosexual spy. It begins in 1948 in the in the Hiss Chambers case. And there are several other events that will, you know, seem to cement this in the popular imagination. I mean, you did also see gay people being recruited into espionage yeah. uh, in the OSS, precursor to the CIA. When did it turn? At what point did gay people become viewed as a national security threat? I mean, so it begins a little bit with World War II, because that is when the notion of national security really becomes a notion. You know, before that, there was no civilian intelligence agency. Uh, There's a a funny anecdote I tell in the book about FDR's naval aide sometime in the late 1930s, before World War II. He's walking down the street near the White House, and he sees a white paper just sort of flying through the air. And he snatches it, and he looks at it, and it's a State Department document stamped confidential. The State Department used to be in the building right next to the White House. So this is how secrets were treated in Washington, right, before World War II. Like, you could literally have secret documents just flying out the window on a a windy day. Um, So it begins begins around 1942. But yes, there are a number of prominent gay spies that I write about in the OSS, which is the predecessor to the CIA. It's the Office of Strategic Services. And they complete some, some missions but in fact, there's a proposal I came across in my research just a couple of weeks after Pearl Harbor, where a sex researcher, he sends a proposal to Washington where he says, you know what, because these Nazis are so full of homosexuals, by the way, this was something that was believed at the time, was that the Nazis were a sort of prevalently gay group of men. Because there's so many homosexuals among the upper ranks of the Nazi command, perhaps we should recruit some patriotic homosexuals and send them undercover um, to sort of, you know, infiltrate these these Nazi gay circles, right? So this is something that was believed at the time. But then during the Cold Wars, when this fear of gays is really cemented, um, I mean, the same year as the His Chambers case was another important development is the Kinsey Report comes out. And the Kinsey Report, it's the kind of foremost report on the sexual, it's called sexual behavior in the human male. And it reports that around 10% of men are homosexual. That number is probably exaggerated. I think it's a, probably half that, if not less. But still, this shocks the country, right? And so mm, this, mm-hmm. this is, and so this happens just a couple months before the His Chambers case in 1948, and then in 1950, you have Joe McCarthy. He makes these accusations that there are all these communists in the State Department. Just a couple of weeks after he delivers that speech, it's revealed on Capitol Hill through testimony that. The State Department had fired 91 gay people in the three years prior. And so this is when homosexuality begins to become conflated with with communism. 
you know, communists and homosexuals, they're both living secret lives. They can easily disguise themselves. They are sort of rebels against bourgeois society and bourgeois morality. And then in 1951, there's the famous case of Guy Burgess and Donald McLean, the two British diplomats who have been working in Washington, and then they defect to the Soviet Union. Burgess was gay, pretty quite flamboyantly gay for his time. And this was widely known. And so this is yet another, you know, it's another example of this supposed nexus between homosexuality, communism and treason. Mm. There's some some really heartbreaking stories in the book. I'm thinking in particular about Bob Waldron, which you write about for the first time in this book. You got his unredacted thousand page FBI file in the course of your research. And you include this incredibly powerful letter of his to the man who outed him. Give us the broad strokes of Bob Waldron's story. Yeah, so Bob Waldron was an aide to Lyndon Johnson. He started working for him beginning in Johnson's tenure as the Senate Majority Leader. He was a young man, around my age. He was in his mid-30s. He worked for Johnson when he was vice president. And then just a couple of weeks after the Kennedy assassination, while Johnson was moving into the White House, Waldron was helping him move into the White House. The Civil Service Commission is doing a background check on Waldron, as you have to do to anyone who wants a job in the White House. And they turn up evidence of Waldron's homosexuality. And the evidence consists of a single interview that they conducted with a friend of Waldron's who told them a story uh, involving Waldron making a pass at him. Mm -hmm. This is a very close friend, too. A very close friend. And it's a real betrayal. And a couple of months after, so Waldron loses his job. Obviously, he's banished from the White House, never to return. And he discovers somehow, I didn't really find out how, but he he discovers that this is how he was outed. He he knows that it's this guy who outed him. And he writes a letter to him, which the friend, by the way, would later pass on to the Civil Service Commission or to the FBI, because the FBI did a subsequent investigation and he gave them this letter. And the letter is heartbreaking. I mean, it's very well written and it's very heartfelt and it's forgiving, but it's it's very heartbreaking. And there is one line that I think is important and illustrative of what I was saying earlier about how being gay was worse than being a communist. He says, Waldron says that I will be marked by our society, which does not permit a return. Mm. And that was really the fate of a gay person in Washington. You know, once you were marked, you were persona non grata and there was no way back for you. Uh, and that was true for Bob Waldron. You know, he had, he had a very promising career. He was working, you know, his dream of working in the White House, and then it was it was all over. And he moved to New York, and he went on to have a successful career as an interior decorator. But his his political career was was done with that with that incident. Mm. There's there, there's so many sort of atmospheric details in the book. One that I thought about a lot is like the use of euphemism and Mm. innuendo and, you know, all these references to antique collecting. Like, how did you go about decoding all of that? Yeah. So these were just sort of, this was a phenomenon that I just discovered while doing the research. And that because homosexuality was this terrible, deep, dark secret that no one would ever even talk about, that they had to devise all these other means of describing it, right? 
So the first outing in American politics, which occurred in 1942 of a, a senator from Massachusetts named David Walsh, you know, in the course of describing it, the Senate Majority Leader refers to a crime too loathsome to be mentioned in the presence of ladies and gentlemen in the United States Senate. They would come up with terms like sexual deviant, sexual deviates, perversion, right? Anything to avoid using the actual term homosexual, right? There's the famous quote from the Oscar Wilde case, the love that dare not speak its name. And there are maybe sort of positive silver linings to this, which is that, you know, gay people became very adept at communicating in code, communicating with their eyes alone, using words and euphemisms themselves, you know, dropping hints in conversation to suggest to someone else that you shared the same secret. But this all adds, again, secret, right? This is the title of my book. This all adds to this kind of atmosphere of secrecy in this sense that gay people can't be trusted. Um, Because they have this secret, they have to lie. Their entire life is a lie, right? They're pretending to be something they're not. And so it's this kind of externally imposed system that is very corrupting. I mean, the closet is a very terrible place to be. And it's harmful for gay people themselves, obviously. Gay people do terrible things to themselves. It's bad for their own psyche. But they also do terrible things to other people. You know, you have gay men who will marry women, you know, who they're not really in love with, but they have these sham marriages. And mm. and, and then, you know, so the, it, it's, it was terrible for everyone. It was terrible for society mm-hmm. uh, that, that we lived in a country where, as I call it, the specter of homosexuality, you know, it reigned for most of the 20th century. Yeah. And I, I remember hearing you telling Bridget Phetasy that the the villain in this book is the closet. <laughs> like yeah. this is it's very powerful. I also was struck by the the culture of paranoia, of surveillance. Uh, There's a great anecdote of a woman who's at Bridge and is talking to her friends and winds up being interrogated by the FBI. Um, When you think about that sort of level of paranoia, and we'll, we'll get more to this in a moment in terms of the climate we're in right now, but do you see historical parallels? With with now, the period now? Mm-hmm. Well, yes, I do in the sense that one of the things I discovered in researching and writing this book was how homophobia is very, uh, there's a very conspiratorial element to it. We're all familiar with sort of the religious objections to homophobia. Those goes go back to the Bible. There's, as I've referred to the kind of, there's the, there's the medical, right? The belief that this was a medical condition. And then there's this sort of the basic disgust that that straight people have with gay people because they're different and because their sexual practices are different from those that straight people engage in. But there's this other element that I discovered, and it's a it's a conspiratorial element. And it's very similar to anti-Semitism in that, you know, gay people, they're not always readily identifiable in the same way that Jews are. Gay people like Jews are perceived as being not loyal to the country in which they're of which they're nominally citizens, but they they're loyal to some sort of transnational, you know, secret brotherhood, some secret fraternity of gay men. Right. Um, And it really dates back to the early 20th century. There was a scandal involving the Kaiser of Germany, and he was accused by a newspaper journalist of being surrounded by this homosexual clique of advisors who were leading him down a path to ruin. 
Hmm. Um, and there was really no evidence for this, right? But there was just this belief, oh, if there's one homosexual, then they'll bring in another. And really, if there's like two homosexuals within the vicinity of each other, then they must be doing something nefarious. And that's what you know, the lavender scare is, right? The purge of gay people from the federal government in the 1950s is, is this, mm-hmm. this belief that, 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 that gay people operate in secret and they're operating nefariously. Um, if any of your listeners have seen the movie JFK, a very famous movie by Oliver Stone, it's based on a real trial of the only man prosecuted for the assassination of JFK, a man named Clay Shaw, who was basically accused by the district attorney of New Orleans of being engaged in a homosexual conspiracy to kill the president, President Kennedy, the most handsome man in the world. It was a homosexual thrill killing, is what the district attorney said. And he linked this businessman, Clay Shaw, to a number of other gay men. He thought that he accused Lee Harvey Oswald of being gay. And it was this crazy conspiracy, but it was all linked. There were all these men were linked by supposedly by homosexuality. So this is a recurring theme in the book. And I think now to get to your question, there's this rhetoric about we of, of, of gay teachers being groomers, right? Yeah. Of grooming children in a sexual way. And this is a conspiracy. It's a conspiratorial frame of, of thinking, but it has it's it has a long, ugly pedigree mm-hmm. um, in our history. Yeah, I was thinking about that a lot reading the book. I mean, it, the on the one hand, you can sort of understand the teaching of gender ideology in schools may be concerning for some. But on yeah. the other hand, I do feel like I'm seeing some of the more blatant homophobia that I have seen in my lifetime. Is that your feeling with this groomer thing? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree that, you know, reasonable people should be able to debate and disagree about, you know, at what age these concepts of gender identity and homosexuality should be taught. But to refer to people as groomers, particularly gay men, I mean, there's such an ugly, dangerous history uh, of gay men being accused of pedophiles. I mean, that really is the worst thing you can accuse a gay man of being. And, you know, there used to be public service announcements. There's an infamous public service announcement that aired in American public schools throughout the 1960s. It's about, you know, warning children to be wary of homosexuals because they are, they'll, they'll do inappropriate things to you. They're sexual deviants. And, it, and it's a, it's a film, a black and white film of, you know, of a man, you know, luring a young boy, grooming him, right. Luring him with candy and treats and prizes. Um, and it's this, this video, this film, it's a newsreel, you know, it's warning young boys to steer clear of these homosexuals because they have, they have an unhealthy interest in young men. So this is, this is a really terrible thing. And it's, it's led to so many gay men being discriminated against being, being physically assaulted in some cases killed, right. This fear that they are pedophiles because that is really the worst thing you can be right. Is to sexually exploit a child there's really nothing worse than that. And to accuse gay people of being that thing is really reckless and irresponsible. Mm. I want to ask you about the media in a moment. Um, Mm. But before I want to kind of circle back for a minute, there there was one more story that I really wanted to tease out. And that was the story of Terry Dolan. So Mm. we know AIDS forced a lot of people out of the closet. 
Can we talk a little bit about his story and about how that story came out? I know there were accusations before his death. Right. So Terry Dolan was one of the most important figures in the uh, what was called the New Rights. And this this developed in the 1970s. They um, supported Ronald Reagan in his insurgent bid against the seat, the the, pre- the Republican president at the time, Gerald Ford. He was challenged from the right by Ronald Reagan. And the new right really kind of coheres around Ronald Reagan. They're very nationalist. They're very socially conservative. They're driven by, you know, issues like school prayer, abortion, you know, opposition to giving the Panama Canal, over, you know, back um, and very anti-communist and very small government. And Terry Dolan is the very young, he's 26 years old at the time. He founds an organization called the National Conservative Political Action Committee, NICPAC. It's one of the first PACs in America. And they are decisive in getting the Republicans control of the Senate in 1980 and helping Ronald Reagan win. Terry Dolan's also a gay man, and he's very secretive about this. But it becomes to be known in Washington in political circles in the early 1980s. He'd be spotted at gay bars and whatnot. But with his brother, a man named Tony Dolan, Tony Dolan is the chief speechwriter to Ronald Reagan. So I say that the Dolan brothers are basically the most powerful brothers in Washington since the Kennedys. They're on the opposite side of the aisle, but they're very influential. You know, Tony Dolan in the White House, Terry Dolan outside the White House. And so, you know, by day, Terry Dolan is making common cause with Jerry Falwell and the religious right um, and sort of whipping up this sort of, you know, um, right wing fervor in America. And by night, he's cruising leather bars and saunas, gay saunas and having lots of sex with men. He is outed in 1982 in a book by a gay author about the religious right. But interestingly, this doesn't affect his standing in the conservative movement. He denies it. And in a sign, I think, of kind of the hypocrisy that Washington is known for, uh, his friends in the conservative movement accept his denial. Whether or not they believed it, it's hard to say, but they just sort of go along as if this, you know, these are scurrilous accusations by this gay journalist who has an agenda and, you know, we're just going to ignore it. And because Terry Dolan was really good at his job, you know, he was very, very effective. He he basically created the attack ad, the, the television, the 15 second and 30 second attack ad was basically created by Terry Dolan. The phrase baby killer, you know, to describe someone who supports abortion was basically one that was coined by Terry Dolan. They ran ads against George McGovern, the Democratic senator uh, who ran for president, who was the nominee in 1972. So Terry Dolan's basically able to survive in the conservative movement until he dies in 1986 and he dies of AIDS. And this becomes a real sort of test for the media. He was quite young too, right? He was 36 when he died. Yeah. Which, you know, I don't know what, I'm not sure what the average age of gay men who died of AIDS was, but it was around that probably late thirties, early forties, you know, young. And so this becomes a test for the media because the mainstream media did not report these rumors that Terry Dolan was gay while he was alive. There were obviously attempts to get people to write about it, uh, but the mainstream media didn't touch those rumors. But then he died. And Ben Bradley, who's the editor of The Washington Post at the time, basically faces this conundrum like, you know, what do we do? How do we write about this guy? And he figured, look, Terry Dolan, while he was alive, was a very influential figure. And he was gay and his life, and he died of this disease that the administration, which he supported 
fervently and his brother is the chief speechwriter for is largely ignoring. I mean, President Reagan didn't even mention the word AIDS until 1985, four years after the disease was identified. So Bradley decides, look, this this guy is he was he was he's not alive anymore. So we're not you know, there's no kind of ethical qualms about how outing him would affect his own life. There's no questions about, you know, are we making a decision for, for him that doesn't belong to us? Right. So he belongs to history at this point. He was a public figure and his life illustrates this this really thorny issue of what it's like to be a gay person in this conservative movement in the in the midst of AIDS, the height of the AIDS crisis. And so they publish an expose on Terry Dolan's life as a gay conservative and his death from AIDS. And it opens up with a very vivid anecdote where it's about there are two funerals for Terry Dolan. There's the official one at a Catholic monastery where the whole toast of conservative Washington is present at, including people like Pat Buchanan, a viciously anti-gay journalist who at the time was the communications director in the White House, all these Republican senators um, and other figures who who Terry Dolan had helped elect, many of whom were very anti-gay in their politics. And then a couple of days later, there was another funeral for the gay conservatives who were friends of Terry Dolan. And that's at St. Matthew's Cathedral in Washington. And this is how the story begins. And it kind of illustrates this divided life that gay conservatives had to lead, right? Where there was the open life, the kind of public life that they led, which was false in many ways. And then there's this private secret world. And this story really upsets Tony Dolan, who's the brother of Terry Dolan, because he's basically humiliated. And, you know, he was very, very socially conservative Catholic. They come from a very conservative Catholic family. And, you know, I found in Ben Bradley's papers, I found his correspondence with Tony Dolan. And Tony Dolan is begging him not to write this story. And then after it's published, Tony Dolan writes an 8,000 word, you know, I hesitate to call it an essay. It's really this sort of uh, just outraged diatribe where he's accusing the Washington Post of being, you know, controlled by this homosexual cabal. He says, Ben Bradley, you know, it's so bad. Ben Bradley can't turn his back on anyone at the Washington Post. It's very kind of crude in ways. Um, and he accuses the Washington Post of basically, you know, defiling the memory of his of his brother. And he and he publishes it. He he purchases a two page ad in the Washington Times to print this essay. And it's just a very kind of it's a kind of crazy thing, you know, for a speechwriter, a presidential speechwriter whose job is to be behind the scenes, right? And you never you never take credit for a speech, let alone publish anything under your own byline, right? So this is the chief speechwriter of the president of the United States going to these lengths to, you know, excoriate uh, the Washington Post. And I think it it just shows you the sense of the, the, the power that this issue had over people in Washington, that it would drive them to do some, you know, things like this. Such a wild story. Um, I do want to spend just a moment on the media before we close and, and talk about sort of the, the very optimistic kind of ending of this book. But first, with the media, I mean, 
I was thinking about your positionality here. You're a journalist, you're a budding historian, someone who cares deeply about gay rights. All three of these arenas have relied heavily on facts. So of course, journalism and history, but also gay rights. You know, I had Jonathan Rauch on the podcast and he walked me through why free speech and better factual arguments were responsible for the gay marriage victory. When you look at the media landscape right now, how do you think our profession is doing when it comes to upholding truth and fact and reality? Not too well. And I see it in this obsession now with the term disinformation, which I first came across when I was working in Central and Eastern Europe for Radio for Europe, which was a kind of Cold War legacy institution. And our job at Radio Free Europe was, was really to combat Russian disinformation, which was coming out, which was being pushed out by Russia into Central and Eastern Europe. You know, you we saw that in the run-up to the war in Ukraine, and you still see it with these crazy stories about Ukrainians being Nazis and whatnot, right? But then I saw this term disinformation become politicized and used domestically by people in the United States sort of against their political adversaries. And I think disinformation now, this term and the concept, the rubric, has basically become for the mainstream media and for left of center people, what the term fake news is for Trump and his supporters, right? So basically anything you don't like, if you're on the right, it's fake news. If you're on the left, you just call it disinformation, which isn't to say that disinformation doesn't exist. But there are many things that have been labeled disinformation, which later turned out to be true. So, you know, the lab leak theory, we don't know, it might be true, right? I think there's strong evidence it could be true, but was immediately branded disinformation at the time. The Hunter Biden laptop. I mean, there's just all sorts of stories that are now branded disinformation. And so what I, what I don't like is this impulse among journalists to be censors now. I mean, our job should be opening up minds and opening up conversations and allowing for fuller discussions and conversations. And yet it seems to me so many people in our profession, they see themselves as narrative enforcers, as opposed to people trying to investigate and bring about truth, right? There's a narrative that has to be enforced and anyone who questions it needs to be censored. Where I'm coming at this from the perspective of someone who is the beneficiary of a movement that not long ago would have been labeled disinformation. They had other terms to describe what gay people were and what we were saying. Obscene. That was a legal term that was used to censor gay magazines, right? It's, it's, it's an obscenity, what they're saying. It's obscene, what they're saying. And so much of this book is about people coming out of the shadows, coming out of the closets, speaking their, their truth, the truth right, for the first time, and how important that was to changing people's hearts and minds. There was this conception, this cultural archetype we've discussed. If you asked someone what a homosexual was in the 1940s or 50s, they would have said a pedophile or a communist or a criminal. That's what most people thought gay people were. Now, very few people think that. And why is that? Because gay people could actually talk the truth about themselves. And so I am very devoted to this notion that you know, people have to be allowed the freedom to speak. And it doesn't matter how crazy or evil or disgusting you think it is what they have to say. That is ultimately in the eye of the beholder. And I do not want to see journalists of all people in media outlets advocating for censorship. 
Yeah, I, I could not agree with you more. And I, just to close, I want to read a line from the book that struck me. The story of the secret city is the story of openness triumphing over concealment, as you were just talking about, and that you go on to say in the book that no minority group in America has witnessed a more rapid transformation in its status than gay people. In what ways did doing this book make you reflect on your own life and your own position in America? Just an enormous sense of gratitude. I mean, you know, we were talking earlier about how old, you know, Terry Dolan was 36 when he died of AIDS. I was about 36 when I was writing this book. Bob Waldron was 36 when his life was ruined because he was outed. Frank Kameny, I'm not sure, we didn't mention him. He's really, he was the first gay person to challenge his firing from the federal government in 1937. I believe he was 36 or 37 at the time he did wow. that. Yeah. So I'm looking, you know, so many, there were so many resonances in writing this book that I could have been any of these men. You know, I could have been fired from my job for being gay, or I could have died of this horrible disease. And the reason that I did not suffer those fates is because of these people who came before. And that's why I dedicate the book to, I dedicate the book to my family, but also to the gay people who had the courage to come before me and come out and be honest about who they were and to fight for their equal rights. And so I know it's very fashionable now to complain about how terrible things are for the LGBT community in the United States. But I have the completely opposite reaction, having written this book and being really familiar with what it was like before now. I feel an enormous sense of gratitude that I was born late enough that I did not have to suffer through the experiences that so many gay people had to suffer through before me. Well, James, it's a very powerful book. As I said, the writing is so strong, so compelling, and uh, just great to get to speak with you about it today. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com. 